We're continuing in a series called Mountaintop Moments. We're looking through a sort of a survey of the Old Testament from beginning to end, pausing at key mountains in the story and in the land of Israel. And so we've been to Mount Moriah. I think we've got a, a summary slide here to show you. We've been to Mount Moriah, which is, uh, it's hard to see there, but um, we've seen Abraham and Isaac go up Mount Moriah, and we've learned the lesson that the Lord will provide. That's true for them then, and it's true for us today. The Lord will provide. We've been to Mount Sinai, where Moses went up Mount Sinai and got the law. And our lesson we took away from that was us, our obedience to the law is a response to being rescued. Then we saw Mount Nebo. We saw Moses also go up Mount Nebo, and he had that view into the promised land that they were about to enter. And some of the lessons we learned there was that God can bless us even through disobedience, although our sin has consequences. We learned that like Moses, we can prepare younger generations to go where we have never been And we learn that sometimes God blesses us with a moment when our faith is given sight. Most recently, we were at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal with Joshua. So after they enter into that promised land, Joshua leads them in. They conquer the land and they settle in the land. And Joshua reminds them at Gerizim and Ebal to keep the commandments, to obey the word of the Lord. So this week, as we move through the Old Testament, we have been through the first five books with Moses and Abraham. We hit the book of Joshua. The next book in our Bibles is the book of Judges. And so what happens is after Joshua leads the people in and they settle into the promised land, there are 12 tribes scattered throughout the promised land. And they don't yet have this overarching government that rules all 12 tribes. Each of the 12 tribes is sort of figures things out on their own, and sometimes they war with one another, and they try to be unified. But in the book of Judges, things really spiral downward and out of control. And so there's actually a cycle through the book of Judges. Now, when we say Judges, it's best not to imagine a, uh, someone with a, a gavel and a robe It's really better to imagine like a deliverer, an individual who steps up and delivers one of the tribes or the nation from a problem they got themselves into. So the cycle that's repeated in the book of Judges is this. The people uh, will experience some peace and then they will rebel against God. Once they rebel against God, then God is angry. He sends oppression by enemies. The people repent. God raises up a judge, which brings peace. And then the cycle repeats. And so you'll find that throughout the book of Judges, as they tell you about each of these deliverers, that cycle will just go on repeat. The deliverer will bring peace. The people then will rebel against God. Then oppression from enemies will come. Eventually the people will turn to God and say, help us. God will send a judge. The judge will bring peace. And then they'll cycle it over again. There's a famous closing to the book of Judges that maybe you've heard before. You get... Because the book is just full of murder, assassinations, massacres, immorality, and uh, just lawlessness. So that the final verse of the book is this. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the book finishes. With a really tragic story to finish out the book with this reminder that this is what happens if a society decides that we're all just going to do what's right in our own eyes. It just leads to chaos and evil. So in the book of Judges, we're going to pause at Mount Tabor. So Mount Tabor is, uh, we have a picture of it. The word just literally means mound, which it's just, that's what it is, right? You look at it, and you're like, oh yeah, it's a mound. 
And so that's no real spiritual significance to the name. It's just a very good descriptor. So the mound quickly rises to a height of 1,886 feet above sea level. Mount Tabor is in the northern region of Israel. You may have seen that on the previous map. It's actually not far from where Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth. He would have been very familiar with seeing Tabor on all of his travels around. What I want us to see as we look at Tabor, we're going to be in Judges chapter 4 and 5. That's where Mount Tabor appears in the book of Judges. And I've named this sermon Up, Down, and Around. Because what we're going to see is what happens when the Israelites go up Mount Tabor, what happens when they come down, and then what happens around the mountain. So up, down, and around. And so we'll start in Judges chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. It says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil on the side of the Lord. We're jumping into chapter 4, so they're moving their way through the cycle already. Again, they did what was evil on the side of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Here's a tip. Say it with confidence and everyone will think you're pronouncing it properly. Um, so the cycle, people rebel, God is angry, oppression of enemies. So that's happened in the first two verses. The cycle is starting over again. So if you remember, the next step in the cycle is now the people will repent. The people will turn to God. So verse 3, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So for 20 years... This group, that's, there's a king, but the focus of the story is on the general of the king's army, Sisera. 900 chariots of iron oppressing the northern tribes of Israel for 20 years until finally the children of Israel are ready to turn to God and get some help. So this is where we get to Judges chapter 4, verse 4. The judge that will help deliver them. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, who was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. So this sounds great. I'm actually a little bit jealous of Deborah. I would love to spend my days in the hill country under a palm tree named after me while the, all of you just come up to me for my wisdom. Like, why not? Sounds great. I have a palm tree named after you, and you all just line up, and hopefully I tell you the word of the Lord. So that's what Deborah did. People would come to her for her judgment. But if you noticed, her palm tree is in the hill country. And so probably what happened during this 20-year reign of Sisera with his iron chariots is the northern tribes learned, if we want peace, we're going to have to hang out in the hill country. Because if we hang out in the valley down below, that's where the chariots have all the upper hand. And so probably the children of Israel learned to settle up in the hill country where the chariots are less powerful and less effective. And so they go up to Deborah for her judgment. So what will Deborah's judgment be? How will she bring deliverance to the oppressed people of God? Verses 6 through 10. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinuam, and from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, 
And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Now Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. So up, we're going up Mount Tabor. Deborah and uh, Barak and 10,000 men are going up Mount Tabor. They're going to the top of the mound, and God's going to draw out Sisera for a battle. Now, here's what's interesting. The majority of preachers and commentators take this passage, and they say, look at this guy, Barak. What a coward. What a coward. So Deborah tells him to go and round up the people, and Barak says, well, I'm only going to go if you go with me. Now, that's the, that's, maybe that's right. Maybe he is a bit cowardly. Maybe he is hesitant to obey. But that's not how I read it. And there's a number of commentators and preachers that read it differently as well. I don't, think, I don't read in there. I think we have to be careful what we read into stories. I don't see in here cowardice from Barak. I see Barak's, forgive me, it's easy to put in Barak versus Barak just because of our, you know, certain words that roll off the tongue easier than others. Uh, Barak's response, if you look closely, it honors Deborah. It's easy to throw him under the bus as a coward, but if we pause and we see like his response actually honors Deborah. It says, Deborah, I am this powerful general, but I'll only go if you go with me. Barak's response communicates that he doesn't want to move without the one through whom God communicates. His response is telling us, I'm not going to go anywhere unless the person through whom God speaks goes with me. Why? Perhaps because he is so dependent upon the word of God to know which steps to take. He's saying, I'm not moving anywhere without Deborah because she communicates from God to me and I'm dependent upon him. The other thing that's relevant to this story is if you read in Hebrews chapter 11, so that's at the end of our Bibles, we call it the Hall of Fame of Faith. It tells of all these Old Testament characters and their great and amazing faith. So it says this in verses 32 to 34, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. So there is Barak's name in the list of men of great faith. Now, I think we have to be careful here. It's possible that his words could be understood as cowardice. I could be wrong. But the way I look at it, it seems to me that it's possible that his words could be understood as a powerful man modeling humility and demanding that he and Deborah work together. Let's work together. So as I consider this early part of the story, Barak and Deborah's partnership, 
the rounding up of 10,000 troops as they all together head up to the top of Mount Tabor. The lesson that I see there is that we need one another. So the lesson up, as we go up Mount Tabor, the lesson is this, we need one another. Deborah needed Barak, and Barak needed Deborah, and Barak and Deborah together needed 10,000 men to come together. We need one another. That seems to me to be the point of what we're trying to communicate here. We don't need the glory. We don't need lone rangers. And, and church in America, we don't need like egotistical, powerful men blocking powerful women from significant positions of leadership, right? We need Deborah to step forward here and play the role that God has for her. We need one another. We need men and women coming together to use the gifts that God has given them. We need leaders who need those We need leaders, I'm sorry, and we need those who will follow that leadership. We need prophets, and we need generals, and we need soldiers. And we all need to go up the mountain together. And we need to be reminded of this in a time in which we live, which we are just hyper-individualized, hyper-privatized in our American lives that we live Despite never-before-seen advances in technology, we are more isolated and more privatized than ever before. From the phone, to the car, to the internet, all these advances in technology could be connecting us more and more and more, and all the studies will show you that while there is some connection, it is also isolating us more and more and more. Just look around society. Just look at our families. Go out to lunch today and look around the restaurant and watch families eating together. Each of them on a screen, right? Like, just look at my family. Not around the dinner table. We're pretty disciplined with the phones at the dinner table. But if you look at my family, look at how technology has served us. We're the only people in our family that live in Pittsburgh. So we use the phone, and we use the car, and we use the internet to try and stay connected. But what have they done? They've given us the freedom to isolate ourselves from all of our extended family. Look at our neighborhoods, right? We, we go from our houses to our garages, to our cars, to our workplaces, back to our garages, and into our houses. And then we wonder, why is it that I don't know my neighbors? And then a lot of us then, now we just work from home, and we skip the commute, and we skip interactions with coworkers, let alone our neighbors, right? This is just the pattern in which we live. I'm not saying that you fall into all of these categories. I'm just saying these are just some patterns as we look at our Western society. As I just look at my life, I, I ask myself this week, when was the last time that I had a conversation with my neighbors that lasted more than five minutes? Right? Like, we just have become so isolated in our neighborhoods. You look from our families to our neighborhoods, look to our churches. So the greatest challenge, I think, of leading a church today isn't necessarily getting everybody to show up on Sunday morning, although that can be a challenge. Greatest challenge in leading a church today is to get to those who will come out on a Sunday to actually connect in community. That's actually the most unique challenge we have as we lead churches today in 2023 in America. It's wonderful that you're here, but now how do we actually connect in community together? So listen, we need each other. 
not, nearly, not merely for the sake of being together, but because when we come together, we can do something together that is greater than what we can do alone. So every Wednesday, I gather with a group of men in the fellowship hall downstairs on Wednesday mornings to read the Bible together. And if you're a man and you're free on early Wednesday mornings, please join us. We'll make a space for you at the table. Our, our process is really simple. We agree to read a chapter of the Bible during the week. We agree to write up a soap journal, which is just simply uh, we write down the scripture we read, one observation we made as we read it, and then we try to make an application for that to our lives, and then we write a prayer. And then we go around the circle, and from that chapter, we each share. Now, in recent weeks, we've been in, like, from pretty difficult chapters of the Bible. But chapters of the Bible, and I read them, I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't even know what to write, because I don't really understand what I just read, and I don't really know how to apply it to my life. But I typically can walk away with like one thing, and I'll go to the group, and a few weeks ago I even opened up the group time, and I said, I, I don't know, guys, there's really nothing here, but let's give it a whirl. And we walked away at the end of that hour, I was just blown away. Like, there was so much in that chapter that I couldn't see. There were so many observations, so many applications, so many beautiful, meaningful things shared around the table, and I'm writing down as they're talking. Why is that? It's because when we come together, we can do something greater together than we can do on our own. For thousands and thousands of years, we've been reading this book together. It's only really in the last couple hundred years that we've been reading it in isolation. This book was written and designed for us to read it together. We need one another as we grow in our faith. You, should, you can get good things out of it as you read it alone, and you should read it alone. But you should also read it with other people, because as we do that together, we can do something greater than we can do on our own. Look around our church. On a Sunday, there's approximately 300 people that gather on a Sunday morning. Between the two services and the children and the volunteers, there's about 300 of us on an average Sunday that gather, which is great. Maybe there's four or 500 that call Northgate Church home, and that's wonderful. It's great that we come together. As we come together, though, I do want to just take a moment and highlight some Debras and Barracks. We often... Men seem to get center stage, or at least I certainly get center stage a lot. So let me take a moment to highlight some Deborahs in our church. Sophie Golding, I think, is right now in the nursery, leading our nursery. She leads our nursery. Missy Dubay leads our preschool. Caroline leads our children's ministry, and Mega here forthcoming. Kelly Schroeder leads our different abilities ministry. You often look up at the stage and you'll see women leading you in worship. What you won't see on a weekly basis probably is Kirsten Ennis as she leads us every Wednesday in our prayer time. And you won't see Pat Klein who leads us in our prayer ministry of a church through our prayer chain that goes out through phone calls and emails. But there are women that are significant in our church and we're trying to give them the opportunity to use the gifts that God has given them. There's been a lot of turmoil at the church over the last couple of months, right? Our associate pastor left. We hired a new associate pastor, and we're now without a youth director. And in this season, I have intentionally reached out to women in our church. I wish they were sitting under palm trees and I could have visited them, but instead I called them. People like Joni and Diane and Diane Wycheck and, and others that I've intentionally reached out to. I've gone up into the hill country and given them a call to say, what do you think? What's, what's your wisdom? 
in this situation. We need one another as we go up the mountain together. We need Deborah's and Barak's, and we need 10,000 soldiers. We need one another as we go up. Once we're up at the top, here's what happens. Judges chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So you're at the top of Mount Tabor. 10,000 people up there with you. I don't know how long they're up there. But they get up there, and then Sisera says, all right, I'll come out. I'll gather down in the valley below. So you're at the top of Mount Tabor, you and 10,000 people, and Barak and Deborah, and you're watching as Sisera gathers his crew in the valley below. More and more and more troops show up. More and more iron chariots show up. 900 iron chariots and all his troops. Now, iron chariots may not sound that good to you, but you got to go back thousands of years. Iron chariots are like tanks, right? Like iron chariots equal like lots of soldiers if you're used to the risk game, right? It's like 10 to 1 in risk. I don't know what it was thousands of years ago in the Middle East. But as you're on the top of Mount Tabor and you're looking down into the valley below, things start to be looking a little bit impossible. As Sisera, who's oppressed you for 20 years with his iron chariots, is down in the valley below, there, they've all congregated, they're all there, you're up there starting to reevaluate the plan. The only advantage we have here is being at the top of the mountain. Like that's, that's our only advantage. We're outnumbered, we're outgunned, we're just underdogs here, and the only advantage is our position. And then Deborah says, up, for this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And you're like, now? This is the day that we're supposed to leave the high ground and go down into the valley where the iron chariots have the upper hand. Today's the day basically to go into the slaughter. Here's the point. We need courage to come down the mountain. We need one another to go up the mountain, and then we need courage to go down the mountain. We need courage to do an impossible task. We need courage to leave our positions of power atop the mountain. We need courage to leave our, leave our positions of comfort from the top of the mountain. We need courage to go where it looks like there is just certain defeat. We need courage to obey God when he speaks to us through his prophet. We need courage. And where does the courage come from? Deborah tells us where it comes from. Deborah says, does not the Lord go out before you? So the courage isn't in your abilities. I don't care how great of a soldier you are. It's not in your ability. There's chariots down there. Is your courage in your strategy? No, you have a lousy strategy. You're going down into a valley where there's iron chariots. Is your courage in your power? No, you're outnumbered and outgunned. Your courage comes from the fact that the Lord goes out before you. It's courage that comes from our faith in God. He has spoken, and we will obey, and that's where our courage comes from. It comes from the Lord. 
That's what Joshua told them in the previous book over and over again. He told them, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We need courage to trust and obey God in our world today. God has called us to what might feel like an impossible task. As we together this morning have gathered at the top of the mountain, and here in just a moment I'm going to send you out the doors to go down the mountain, out into a society that isn't so much in favor of Christianity anymore. As you sit here, you have a position of power, don't you? Everybody in the room agrees with you. And I'm going to send you out here into what might feel at times like an impossible task. But just look at what Jesus did. Jesus was atop a mountain not far from here. He gathered his disciples together around him. In Matthew 28, he said these words to his disciples. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age." Now, I don't know about you, but I read it today and it sounds like an impossible task that we should go and make disciples of all nations so that everybody in the world is following Jesus. That's impossible. But just think of how it would have sounded to a handful of people at the top of a mountain in Israel 2,000 years ago. A handful of people who have only really been following Jesus for maybe three years or less and who pretty much all speak the same language. And Jesus turns to them and says, now you, just handful of people, I want you to go to every nation in the world and make disciples of every nation in the world. Well, that's impossible. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray. So we're probably familiar with these words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we stop there. Have you ever paused to consider what an impossible prayer request that is? You might as well spend your day praying for a Ferrari, right? This is an impossible prayer request. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on this earth like it is in heaven. Well, that's impossible. Turn on the news. God's will being done on this earth? How is this possible? And yet, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, Jesus said, I'll teach you how to pray. This is how you pray. Pray that the kingdom would come and that my will would be done right here on earth, just like it is in heaven. Well, that's impossible. We need courage to take on the impossible. There's no way I can make disciples of all nations. But I will die trying. There's no way I can bring God's kingdom down to earth, but I'll spend my days trying because that's what you and I are called to do. We're called to go from the top of the mountain down with great courage to go into what looks like an impossible situation with the courage that comes from our Heavenly Father, that we're just going to simply obey Him and die trying to do the impossible. And he gives us courage to head down the mountain. Let's see what happens. Judges chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword and not a man was left. Now how did that happen? 
How did that happen? This was an impossible task. How did this happen? The Lord went out before them. That's how it happened. Now, Judges chapter 5 is a song that was sung by Deborah and Barak after the battle. So if you read Judges chapter 5, you learn a few things about what happened in Judges chapter 4 that you're not told about. Now, we're not going to spend much time in Judges chapter 5 because poetry is difficult. I have enough time with poetry that was written in today's world in English that I can read, let alone poetry that was written thousands of years ago in the Middle East in Hebrew and then has since been translated into English. It's not easy. But let me just give you a couple of really nice pieces from the song. Judges chapter 5, verse 4. The earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Judges 5, 20 to 21. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Something supernatural happened when they moved from the top of Mount Tabor down into the valley below. Something supernatural happened. The land of uh, Pittsburgh is very different from the land of Israel. In the land of Pittsburgh, it rains all the time, right? I got out my, my phone this morning, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, what's the forecast for the next five days? It's like sunshine in the forecast for the next five days. I don't even believe it. <laughs> I assume it will rain, even though there's a sunshine every, for the next five days. But the land of Pittsburgh is not like the land of Israel. We have different climates. In the land of Israel, there is rainy season and there is the dry season. And in the rainy season, you should expect rain. And in the dry season, you should expect it to be dry. That's just how it works. So there is no scenario in the world in which the great general Sisera takes his 900 iron chariots out in the rainy season. It's not going to happen. He's not going to take 900 iron chariots down to the river Kishon in the rainy season. And in the dry season, today, the river Kishon isn't even there. It's just a dry riverbed. But in the rainy season, then all of a sudden, there's the river Kishon. It appeared. And so what's happening here is it's the dry season, and the 900 chariots have arrived, and they're at the top of the mountain, and Deborah says, today's the day. Go down this mountain, and the Lord will deliver him into your hand. And so in faith, they move down the mountain. I don't know when it happened, but at some point, the heavens dropped rain. And it sounds kind of like maybe there was an earthquake involved as well. And I don't know what it means that the stars in their courses, heaven, the, the, I'm sorry, it says, they brought forth the heaven and the stars fought. What is, I don't know what that means, but the torrent of Kishon swept them away. So it sounds like a massive storm rolls in, water gushes in, mud is everywhere, something else is happening, but fundamentally God went out before them and they routed Sisera. So God is calling us up the mountain together. We need one another. He's calling us down the mountain and to have courage to go down into what looks impossible, trusting that he is in control. And as we wrap up the story, let's see what God is doing around the mountain. So around the mountain, God is going to finish the story out with a bit of a surprise twist. A bit of a surprise ending because God likes to use people that you least expect 
to finish out his story. So Judges 4, 17 to 24. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple, and it went down into the ground until he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And then perhaps three unnecessary words, so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin and the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So as we finish out our time together and we look at what's happening around Mount Tabor, maybe, maybe you're a, a JL. And I don't mean by that that you kill people in their sleep. Um... Maybe you are a JL because you're going to play a critical role in God's story this week. But nobody would expect you to be that one. Maybe you're the person in the room who's just like, you know, I'm kind of an outlier here. Everybody here seems to know what's going on. But she's just, this woman isn't even a Jew, she's a Kenite. She's not part of the family of Israel. Now, she seems to be on God's side, but she's a housemaker, a tent maker. She's not what anyone would suspect. Sisera doesn't suspect her. So maybe you're a JL. Maybe you're someone that nobody would even expect. Maybe you don't even expect it yourself as you sit here today, but here is what's some exciting news, I think. God likes to use these characters in his story that nobody would expect to step in and act on his behalf and free his people from some oppression. Deborah told, Sisera, told Barak that the enemy is going to be handed into the hands of a woman, J.L. So as we close... I believe God has a role in his story for each one of us today. You may be a Deborah. Maybe you have received a message from God. Maybe there are messages from God that you need to be sharing with the people around you. Maybe you're a Barak. Maybe you need to respond when invited and move forward and recruit and lead. Maybe you're one of the soldiers that needs to have courage to follow you. Follow the Lord's word down into what looks like an impossible situation. Or maybe you're a jail, a seemingly unimportant person who doesn't really have much history, who doesn't really have much role, and yet it could just be that God wants to use you in his great story of salvation for his people. Whoever you are today, 
the main character in the story is God. None of this happens without God. He's the hero of the story. We need one another to go up the mountain. We need courage from God to go down the mountain. And then we need the willingness to step up if God needs to use us to finish out his story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would each be able to see you in our stories this week. I pray, Lord, that that you would provoke in us a desire to to connect with the people here gathered in our church or or maybe to connect in a meaningful way with our families or in our neighborhoods, Lord. But, But God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would prompt us this week to be together with others, Lord. And we pray that you would give us the courage this week, Lord, to do something that seems impossible, whether that's to to give a gift that seems impossible to give. Maybe it means to speak up for you in a scenario that, that looks impossible, Lord. Whatever it is, we pray that you would give us the courage to follow you and obey you. And Lord, I pray that there would be just one or two or three They may feel as if God couldn't use them, that you would surprise them this week and use them in a meaningful way to advance your kingdom. So, Lord, this is our prayer. We ask that you would use us as we go. We are your soldiers to do your ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you again for worshiping with us today. God's been writing an amazing story for thousands of years, and I hope you see yourself as a part of it. But if I hear one application that involves a tent peg, you're in trouble, right? He works at different times in different ways. Our benediction as we go, we go together. We need one another. And God, will you give us the courage to face our trials this week? For up, today is the day. Does not the Lord go out before us? Amen.